This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I love doing this show, but I cannot do it alone. So joining me as he does every week is the honorable Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? I'm so honored to be here. Thank you, Dan. Excellent. Excellent. We've got all the Klingon buzzwords in. We're good. We're good with uh, with Kalis, and and we'll get into Stovacor. Everything's honorable. <laughs> honorable, kapla. Excellent, excellent. Well, if you haven't figured it out already, we're doing a Klingon novel uh, this week. The novel we're doing is the fourth book of the IKS Gorkon series, kind of. It's actually Klingon Empire, but it's the fourth book featuring the characters from the IKS Gorkon. It's called Klingon Empire, A Burning House by Keith R.A. DeCandido. That's what we're going to be covering in the feature. But before we get there, we do have a comic that we want to cover this week. And this one's kind of cool. This came out uh, just recently. It is Star Trek IDW 2020. And this was their uh, celebratory issue for IDW's 20th anniversary, if I'm not mistaken. And this one is all about a young Captain Jean-Luc Picard and his first mission as captain of the USS Stargazer. So this special one-off issue was written by Peter David, which is definitely exciting because we haven't had him writing a Star Trek comic for quite a while. And with art by J.K. Woodward, which if you remember his style is that kind of watercolor painted look that I just absolutely love. So, Bruce, first impressions reading this issue, what did you think? Um, I was really excited going into this because uh, J.K. Woodward is one of my favorite artists when it comes to comics, and Peter David is one of my favorite authors, and uh, for Star Trek, for sure. And uh, he hasn't written anything in a while, like you mentioned, that's uh, related to Star Trek. So I was really excited, but I would say it's not the best of Peter David's stories, but it's not that it's bad. I was really excited to go into it because this takes place on the stargazer and we're uh, looking at the early years with Jack Crusher and Beverly Howard, soon to be Beverly Crusher. And uh, 
it's a, it's a short adventure because it's just in this one comic, so it's not a series of four or six issues. So it's a quick story. But I would have to say that uh, my first impression going in was very positive. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree with you. Uh, the artwork, first of all, you know, it's J.K. Woodward, so no surprise there. The likenesses are gorgeous, and the style is just absolutely beautiful. I love how well he's able to capture... Patrick Stewart as this young Captain Picard, the facial expressions and the looks are just absolutely perfect. Um, the story itself, I was kind of expecting a little bit more of Peter David's trademark humor. And I just yesterday started reading Imzadi 2 for an upcoming episode of Literary Treks. So, you know, and there's a lot of that Peter David humor right to begin with. So I was kind of going in expecting that, but didn't really get that. But what I, where I think the story works really well is it gives us a Captain Picard who still feels very familiar. There's a lot of what we know of Picard there, but he's got this bit of impetuous youthfulness to him as well. And some, you know, kind of flaws in his personality that contribute to what happens in this story that he definitely doesn't have in later life. So I thought it was really good that it wasn't just a carbon copy of the Picard we know, but he's really used well at the stage of his life that he's in a new captain who's kind of trying to prove himself here. And that part of the story, the character aspect comes across really well. I like how Jack Crusher says to Picard before going down the plant, Jack Crusher, like, you're, you shouldn't go, Captain. You're the captain of the ship. You need to stay here. This is something I need to do. And Picard's very sus insistent to say, you know, you know, I've handled quite a few ha hazardous missions, Mr. Crusher. And he says, you know, yes, there's potential danger, but I have to, it's my duty to protect my crew and basically be an example of like, you know, he can do things too. He doesn't have to keep all nice and safe on the bridge the whole time. So that's the reason he goes down. And when he's in danger, he tells on the, through the communicator, don't send any crewmen down. You know, he's willing to sacrifice himself for his crew. He doesn't want his crew to get hurt. So it was nice seeing that aspect early in his career, how he leads a ship. And it's some ways very similar to how he later leads the enterprise. Yeah. So in the course of this, of course, course he's he's down there with the security team but the security team gets taken out pretty quickly they basically he basically gets caught up in a coup by the brother of the leader of this planet and yeah like you said when he's injured the guy who's leading the coup offers to let them beam somebody down to take care of him because picard like i said is injured and picard says don't send any crew members down and of course, because he said crew members, Jack sends Beverly Howard down, who's not actually a member of the crew. Right. Because uh, Picard was very explicit earlier to say to Beverly, you are not a member of this crew. You may be visiting, <laughs> you may be a cadet, or you may be in Starfleet, but you are not a member of the crew. So he made that very clear at the beginning of the story. Yeah. So that's something that I felt was a little convenient and made the story kind of work here because I feel like yeah. Picard would have said, don't send anybody down, you know, like, but that the fact that he says, don't send any of the crew down, you right. know, it's don't just send like any of the crew, okay. you can send other people down, but not the crew. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's all very convenient. That was the one part of the story that I kind of went, eh, but it works for the most part. It's a charming story. It's it's cool to see Picard at this stage in his life and how he deals with this crisis. 
And we also get to see Picard and Beverly meeting for the first time, which was kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, he even calls her Beverly when she beams down to the planet. She says, you mean Dr. Howard? Like, you know, why is he getting (laughs) so familiar with her? He barely knows her. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Another thing is we finally get to see, I've always thought that the, these uniforms, the monster maroons, like they already looked like dress uniforms. So I didn't quite know how a dress uniform would look, but we get to see that at the end because we get this cool scene, uh, and, and, you know, spoilers, you should pick this up, but spoilers, this ends with Picard officiating at Jack and Beverly's wedding on the stargazer. So that was a really cool ending to the story. You mean Jack and Beverly got married? Yeah, spoilers. I don't oh, know if you no. knew that. Oh my gosh, I wonder if they'll have a kid. <laughs> that's too that's too far-fetched. That'll never happen. <laughs> I bet he'll be a genius. <laughs> very likely. Very very likely. Um yeah, so I really enjoyed this. Uh it wasn't exactly what I was expecting and I think we're not that used to kind of one-off issues anymore these days. We're kind of used to these miniseries and that sort of thing. So it was kind of about halfway through it. I kind of had to remind myself, oh, wait, this story is going to wrap up pretty soon here. So I need to kind of get in that mindset. But I really liked it. I think it's a nice little piece of Star Trek history uh, that I think will fit fairly well into my little head continuity when it comes to Picard's history. I think that's the best way to describe this. It's a little piece of Star Trek history. It's not a must read. It's not this, oh, this is the best comic ever, but it's just so nice to see Picard taking command of the Stargazer for the first time. His first officer is Jack Crusher. He first meets Beverly and Jack and Beverly get married. I mean, it's like, you know, all the things we've known that have happened, but now we get to see those. And there's an adventure that takes place among this, uh, these key moments in their lives. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd have to rate this one pretty highly, I think. I think it's definitely one that uh, if you have any interest at all in Picard and, and his younger years, you should definitely pick this up. Yes. Well, we should get to the feature soon, but before we do that, we should take a look at some feedback that you guys gave us in the Babel Conference on Literary Treks 256, I Would Need More Than a Paragraph, all about Imzadi, also by Peter David. So uh, I knew this would be a big show if we did Imzadi, and I think we've had uh, many more comments on this post than we had on some other episodes recently. So uh, yeah, Amy gives the first comment and she was on the show and she says, thank you guys for having me on to review this book. My favorite. Well, surprise, surprise, you know, she's a big Troy fan. So this book would definitely appease her. That's why we had her on. And Christopher Littlefield says, I have to reread it now. That was his comment to Amy. Yeah. And I think this word favorite is one that's going to be coming up a lot with regards to this book. This really has a special place in a lot of Star Trek readers' hearts. And yeah, Amy, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, And Chris Littlefield, when you reread it, you'll have to let us all know what you think for sure. Uh, The next comment comes from Aaron Mills who says, I still have the hardback of this book. I loved it as a teenager. This is, again, a sentiment I think is going to come up a lot. A lot of people read this way back in the day. It was kind of a big deal. It was a big deal. And Christopher Baca says, I haven't read this book in a long time. 
I remember it being one of those hardcover event books, and it certainly was, Chris. I'm telling you, I remember that too. <laughs> Henry Galarza says, you all just made my week my favorite book ever. Oh, there's that favorite word again. We might have to take a shot every time we see favorite come up. And Justin Ozer says, great discussion. There's a lot that I love about this book, especially the future Admiral Riker stuff. However, I'm one of the people who falls on the side that young Riker is creepy and acts like a stalker. That unfortunately brings the novel down a few pegs for me. Yeah, that's that was a concern that I brought up for sure. And a few people have talked to me saying that Riker creeped them out in this book for sure. Yeah, even Brianna Fern responds saying, even in the show, his attitude toward her and that smile is downright creepy at times. We'll be picking up this book finally next time I get that antique store with all the Trek books. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Julie Watts says, oh, I love this book. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. So we've got a few people commenting before they've heard the episode, but that's cool. Guinevere Liberty now says, first time you've discussed this? Wow. Exactly. I thought the yep. same thing. When I joined the show, I was like, hey, wait, have you guys ever done Amzadi? I don't think I remember here. And Matt Rushing's like, no. And I was like, oh my gosh, we have to do that someday. Well, and, and even I, when you asked that, was like, I th we have, haven't we? And then looked and no, we haven't. So yeah, you're not the only one surprised for sure. Uh, Matthew Petard says, wait, I thought they got together in insurrection, then got married in Nemesis. And that comes from the description of the episode that I wrote that says uh, they never truly got together until 2002 Star Trek Nemesis. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that wasn't a mistake on my part. And I'm going to say that when they got together in insurrection, that was just a little bit of a dalliance and they never really got together until nemesis. But if I'm being totally honest, yeah, I kind of flubbed that. I shouldn't have said got together. I probably should have said married. Okay. Well, we'll let you, <laughs> we'll let that pass Dan. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Henry Galarza mentions, uh, kind of what I just said. He says that was a nice flare up, but no marriage until nemesis. And Evan Jonette says just sex in insurrection, dirty, dirty, next gen sex. Are we allowed to say that? I hope we're allowed to say that. Uh, it's you just did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Evan Jonette also says, I read this one decades ago and crystal Bensley replies same. Hopefully this refreshes my memory. Perfect. Well, we also have Oz Trekkie says, great novel. This one was one of the first TNG novels in hardback. That was a big event back in the day. The things we do for love. Can't say I've ever changed the timeline though. Uh, me neither as far as I know, but uh, you never know. Maybe uh, some future version of me came back and changed things or something. You never really know for sure. You never know. And Adam Sutton says, love this novel when it came out. One of the first novels I can remember rereading again and again. I can totally relate to that, Adam. <laughs> you know, I said we should take a drink every time the word favorite has come up and it actually hasn't come up since I, I said that. So, uh oh, but Ed Harris says been a while since I read this one. Good show as always. Uh, well, thanks so much, Ed. Really appreciate that. And we have a comment from Josh Truex. Truax? I don't know, Josh, how to do your last name, but that's what I did. He says, uh, Data commanding the Enterprise F in Star Trek Online. Hmm, he never did that. Vakel Schoen, a male Andorian, is and has always been the EF captain in STO. Data's only appearance in STO 
was in a cut scene at the end of a mission visiting the imprisoned Sella, and even then, he's only shown from behind and never identified by name. The only clue that it's stated is that he's carrying a hologram of Tasha Yar, whom Sela wanted to ask him about. Okay, so I have a couple <laughs> things on this one. Yeah, I have read some of the short stories in uh, Star Trek magazine a few years ago, The Adventures of the Enterprise F with a Andorian captain. So I'm very, not very familiar, but I'm familiar, familiar with Captain Shone. And I have never played Star Trek online when we record this episode. However, I'm proud to announce that starting this week, I have started Star Trek online. Oh, wow. So I am now on there. So oh. I'm very excited about this. Darn it. I used to be on years ago and I kind of let it slide, but now I want to get back on and I don't have time. What are you doing to me, Bruce? Oh no. This, this throws my life completely in disarray. I don't have time either, but I'm going to make some time. Oh man. Um, I also do want to address this comment. I did re-listen and I can see where the confusion came in. I was referring to the Enterprise F as Data's ship and saying that we get to see what it looks like thanks to Star Trek Online. I didn't mean to say that Data had been commanding it in Star Trek Online, just that he was in this book, but I can see where the confusion came from. So I should have been a little more clear on that. So uh, thanks for for mentioning that and and letting me set the record straight on that. So, uh, but yeah, no, um, no, it was definitely the Andorian in Star Trek Online. And I totally knew that, I swear. Yeah, I, I, I believe you. All right. Well, Justin Ozer wraps it up by saying, just listen to the review of Terra Incognita number six, as I was only able to read that issue the other day. I agree that this was a great finish to the series. Let's see a new series pick up where this one left off. I agree completely. I loved that series. I loved how it wrapped up. But again, there's like enough of a hang hanging thread there with the mirror universe stuff that they really could pick it up again. And I really hope they do. Yeah, I have a feeling uh, they will. So well, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I'm just hoping they will because I just feel like they will. Awesome. Well, it's kind of cool that we ended on Justin Ozer because we're going to pop over to the feature now and guess who's waiting for us on the other side to talk about Klingon Empire, a burning house. Oh, I don't know. Justin Ozer? Well, we're just going to have to flip the page and see. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about the fourth and final book in the IKS Gorkon series, Klingon Empire series. This is where things get a little confusing. This is the fourth book featuring the crew of the IKS Gorkon. It got retooled to be Klingon Empire, but then this was it. This was the last book. So yeah, this is kind of a sad episode, I think. But we are talking about the fourth book in that series. A Burning House by Keith R.A. DeCandido. And of course, joining us as uh, he does when we talk about these Clag books is the wonderful Justin Ozer. Justin, how's it going? Good. Thank you for calling me wonderful. And it's great to be here for the fourth <laughs> and sadly final of these books for us to talk about. I wish there was more, but this is it, guys. Well, I'm yeah. sure Keith is listening. So Keith, Get to it. Write another one. Oh, I don't care if they haven't contracted <laughs> you to do it. Just go ahead and write it and send it to us. <laughs> and we'll read it in a series of podcasts, right? There you go. <laughs> Definitely. Um, by the sounds of it, I think he would love nothing more than to do that. Mm -hmm. So, man, 
you know, if we could make that happen somehow, that would be amazing. Uh, I, I'm sad that, yeah, we're kind of letting go of these characters. I've really come to love this group of Klingons that serve together on the Gorkon. Really eclectic group of characters. And in this novel, it's kind of cool because we they kind of split off and we get to follow all of them on kind of individual adventures. So this is a very different style of novel than we've gotten previously. Yeah. And I love this because we've gotten to know some of the members of the crew over the last few novels. And we've even commented on previous episodes that we were really growing to like these characters. And now when we get to a point where we're warming up to them, we get these character pieces on each of them, which really gives you some depth into the characters. And I was like, this is the perfect opportunity. Cause if you'd done this as a first book and eh, maybe I would have got into it, but now that I'm warmed up to them, it just made this more special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. We're invested in the characters. So it makes sense to follow them as they split off to other places. I mean, to be honest, when I didn't know what to expect for this one, my expectation, I think I said at the end of the last episode was they're going back to Kronos. There'll be a crisis there that the Gorkon crew has to deal with. But no, they split off in different directions, different parts of Kronos, different planets, different things going on. So I didn't quite know what to make of that at first, and it was a little hard to wrap my mind around it. But I came to understand that this was supposed to, I think, be part of a new series, a Klingon Empire series, because you're going to different parts of the Empire. You're seeing more than just, you know, the warriors and the people on the Gorkon. You're seeing people from a lot of different parts of the Klingon Empire a lot of different ways of life who sometimes kind of scoff at what the warriors do, which is really interesting to see. Mm -hmm. I think for me, that was one of my favorite aspects of this book was seeing all those different parts of Klingon society. We see the warriors a lot and, you know, other series kind of got into this a little bit. We saw, you know, a lawyer in enterprise and that sort of thing. But this one I think really digs down and shows you different aspects of Klingon society. We've got farmers, we've got, uh, actors who star in operas. We've got all kinds of different, uh, layers of Klingon society here, which I thought was really neat. So the way I've organized the, um, outline here is, we've kind of split it into each of the different stories. So I thought that might be a kind of easier way to discuss this book, kind of the threads that run through it for each of the characters. So to begin with, we have leader wall, who I think we've mentioned is one of our favorite characters in this whole series. And she ends up accompanying Kagak and Goron to Feban three which is kind of a vassal planet of the Klingon Empire. We've met the Phoebans occasionally before. They're, they do menial work on ships and that kind of thing. And it's a farm planet, basically. Now, Wool initially didn't want to go with them for various reasons, mostly due to her background, but she does end up accompanying them to where they're having a harvest festival. Their return to Kronos coincides with this Klingon harvest festival that I'm Gonna just throw out here the pronunciation of Yopta Yupma. I don't know if that's right. But sounds about that's right. Kind I know that sounds I... good. Yeah. Yeah. Give All it right. a little more oomph. <clears throat> Come on. Yeah, that's that's the thing is when we're reading this, I feel like we soften a lot of the <laughs> Klingon language. But I don't know. The farmers seem a little of... more relaxed about it, so maybe they pronounce it like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe they're like Yopta Rupakada. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making it up. I feel like you've got to add a bit of graveliness in your voice. Yopta yupma. 
but yeah. I don't know if we're going to do that every time. <laughs> but yeah, so they're there for this harvest feast and a bunch of stuff happens. We see life on a Klingon farm and wool kind of uh, comes around to appreciate this other way of life that she discovers here. What did we think of this whole section? And there's a lot going on here because I think this is the one that involves probably the most characters at once. Yeah. Like, so first of all, like, I, I think it's interesting you split it into the different sections. Like, here's the Phoebin story, here's this story and that story, because it kept flipping back and forth between the stories. And for me, a little bit that made it hard to get back into it and be like, okay, here was the thing that was going on. I, I almost felt like as it was going on that it might have been better in like little novellas. But anyway, putting mm. putting together kind of the, the pieces of what happens with with Wall and I guess I'll pronounce it Kagak, I thought it was, but I don't know. Um, so the people that are there in Goran, I mean, it was pretty interesting to see this farming way of life. And you don't usually think of Klingon farmers, right? We never see that in any of the series, but they're the people that grow the food for the empire. And they have different ways of thinking about it because, you know, I think at one point, Wall is talking about, you know, the, the dying with honor and all of that. And they're like, well, if I die, then who's going to take care of my family? You know, very practical considerations where these warriors have already kind of pledged their lives that they're going to, you know, die for whatever honorable cause. But these farmers, it's like, I need to feed my family. I need to help feed the empire. And that means I have to survive. So I thought that was really interesting to 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 see that. It's almost like it's a constant, like if you're a farmer, you want to like survive and make sure your family survives and you provide. So I thought that was kind of an interesting connection because they sounded more human in that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I started to wonder if like this whole idea of dying with honor and all that sort of stuff, you know, there's a certain element of that in Klingon day-to-day -day society, I think. But I also wonder if like, you know, Klingon boot camp for the Klingon defense force, yeah. they just drill it so hard into their soldiers and almost cultish, yeah. but you know, I don't and, want to say it. And, and it almost feels like the people who aren't warriors are like, yeah, that's the ideal. If if you're a warrior, but I'm not, I have to help make the rest of the society function. So I can't act the same way. I can't like challenge someone to a duel and kill them at the drop of a hat because it's going to affect our whole community. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. But then I rewatched Birthright mm. and they're not acting as warriors. And then when Worf arrives, they project the fact that they have not they're not leading a warrior's life like it is it, it's almost a bit confusing it's like with klingons i feel like the messaging is that they're all expected to be warriors or warrior like but then when we see you know scientists and farmers or whoever and doctors for example you know not everyone can be warriors so i don't know it's it's like there's the society where it's expected but then you're not really you don't really have to be that way. I don't know. I don't really know how to say it. It's almost like, you know, the, the Klingon, I'm, I'm just going to say religious belief or, you know, philosophy kind of runs up against the practicalities of day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think uh, Justin said it best. He said, you know, that's the ideal. But when you're faced with the day-to-day -day realities of working as a farmer or a laborer, that's just not something that's going to come up every day and day to day. And, you know, I, there, there's aspects of it. So for example, during this harvest festival, there's a challenge where, you know, 
two Klingons fight each other. So, you know, it almost seems like there's outlets for that, but you know, you can't, when you're worried about, you know, some harvest be thinking, well, today I'm going to go give my life for the empire. <laughs> you know, you're going to give your life in your labor and things like that. I mean, and notice also for that fist fighting tournament that they have, it's not like fight to the death. It's like fight until you can't mm -hmm. get up, right? You're not trying to kill mm -hmm. people. You're just trying to show like I'm the strongest and it's this whole outlet for aggression, but also people get to bed and maybe they can get ahead and all of that. So it's, it's a little bit different. Whereas if it was warriors, it would be like, just going to fight to the death. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. very different and it makes sense with these practicalities because I know that's something that Keith DeCandido has talked about. Like not everybody can be warriors. You can't actually have a functioning society. So in this novel, he's kind of showing us, here's how you have a functioning society. Some people just aren't warriors and they need to behave differently for the empire to even survive. Right. Maybe it's like mm -hmm. in the Klingon instinct, it's natural to fight. But then in the society and the roles that they're in, they don't fight, but there's maybe some of that instinct there. And sometimes they, they don't, because they become more civilized, they hold that back. And then those who are warriors look at them as weak. It's like, you know, I'm a warrior and that's what I'm, I've been trained to do. And now when I look at people who aren't fighting and aren't warriors, there's something wrong with you. You should be a warrior. That's our natural instinct. That's what you need to be doing. And everyone's like, but you know, we're, we're a society. We, we have to, we're a community. We have to get along, but you know, it's almost like a religion in a sense where when somebody's a certain religion and they meet someone else that isn't religious, they try to show them, you need to be like this. You need to find this religion and put that into your life. And I think that brings us back to the birthright example and Worf kind of always having been that born again, Klingon really <laughs> that, that prototypical, you know, I live this and I really believe it. And, you know, even the day-to-day -day Klingons that he comes across tend not to be as invested in honor as Worf is. Mm -hmm. But even with this festival, with that fight, that still comes into it because the, the leader of the house says, you know, if we don't put forward a champion, we lose honor as a house as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's just little bits of it that come yeah. into it still. I mean, in all of this, especially with the example with Birthright, I mean, it it seems like, you know, some of how they act is really the nurture instead of the nature because someone like, we'll talk about him a little more later, but someone like Tok, who was growing up under, you know, this Romulan administration and Romulans and Klingons together, acted very differently than someone who's grown up with like the warrior ideals. So I think it's, it's saying that a lot of the behavior that people have comes from the experiences that they have. And if they have different experiences, it's not just the case because there are certain species that always be a certain way. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, I also like just seeing a farmer's life or how this family is and how the, you know, the mother of at the farm, you know, is like, Oh, we're going to eat and we're going to eat outside. And she's bringing out all the food and everything. <laughs> And I, it took me back to Voyager. I expected her to come out and go, Corn on the cob! And someone playing cob! banjo in the corner. <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like to me. <laughs> yeah. I had the same image in my head, wow. and I remember at one point having to kind of stop and shake my head and say, nope, she's a Klingon. Stop picturing her like that woman in Caretaker. I didn't, pic I don't I didn't know picture why, but that like, at but all. Just that stereotype came up. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was totally random, I know. Um, <laughs> but I also... After that part of the book, I want to try Candied Rocked. 
I think is my takeaway. Yes. That part was interesting too, because they're like rocked, you know, it's supposed to be live, but um, they're like, Oh, candied. It's amazing. And they're willing to try <laughs> that in this farming lifestyle because I guess they kind of have to right? like, it's just something to use all the food. You need to preserve it in some way. Whereas a warrior would be like, it always has to be live and they're practical and they're like, but it's really good candied. <laughs> it, I mean, it's just a little <laughs> example that says something that they're making different decisions based on what they need to do to make the best use of their resources. Well, we talked a little bit about birthright and talk has come up a bit already. So let's move on to that section of the book. And, you know, there's so much in this book. I feel like we're going to be moving pretty quickly through these, unfortunately, but there really is just a ton in this book. So there's a callback in this book to the Next Generation episode, Birthright, and it pertains to the Romulan prison camp on Korea 4, which, if you'll remember, that's where Worf rescued Tok and a number of other Klingons who were the offspring of Klingons who were captured during the Kittimer raid uh, by the Romulans. And it was uh, it was led by a Romulan warden named Tokoth, and he had a half-Romulan, half-Klingon daughter named Bile. Now... We find out in this novel that it's been attacked by Gorik, and all were killed except for Bile and Tokath. Um, those two survived. So Gorik's attack, we learn there's this whole convoluted plot that has to do with uh, basically bad investments made by uh, Lacor before the Kittimer raid and this other family that lost big on that same deal. Their son is trying to get revenge. I want to talk to you guys about this story. Do you think it was a good follow-up to Birthright? And were you excited to be revisiting this? I was interested to revisit it because those are some characters I was interested in. Sorry, I may pronounce some of these things differently in my head. But um, but like I, I think after Worf leaves, I was always interested, like, what happens to some of these people? I mean, it's sad in the plot that happens here that everybody dies except for Bale and Tokoth, and then Tokoth dies shortly after that. But um, I think it was good to follow it up, but it felt like sometimes things got resolved a little quickly. Like, they find this guy and he's dead pretty quickly. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I, I think I would say this, this was a part of the novel where I was just trying to follow, like, what was happening. And for me, like, the really important part is Bale and seeing how her life moves forward. I felt like a lot of the rest of it was just kind of getting to that. And it, it's interesting just to think about, well, I mean, first of all, I don't think I realized watching Birthright that she has no idea there's anything out there besides the Klingons and the Romulans. And I read that and I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess that's right. And it's like, wow, she has no idea about the Federation or like anything else that's out there. So, and, and I think she even says like, Worf, if I knew there was more than just the Klingons and Romulans, I would have gone with you because there would be, because she feels like she can't live in the Klingon empire or the Romulan empire. So I felt like it add, added some really interesting layers to that story. But then like almost as an afterthought, it's like, yeah. And by the way, at Kittimer, there was a secret metagenic weapons thing. And it was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But the, I was trying to follow all of it. But for me, like the heart of it was was Bale and, and her journey, which was really interesting. And seeing like even like when you get to the epilogue that she has like a new life that she's going to live. And I'm interested. I would be interested to see where that that leads. So that's more what I got out of it than anything, actually. 
that's one of the things that always frustrated me about Birthright as well when I watch it is, you know, she's like, I, I can't live in the Klingon world or the Romulan world. And I'm like, Worf, you're from the Federation. <laughs> What's the matter with you? So I'm so glad that she was as frustrated here when she found that. I out. actually I never like, thought of that when watching Birthright before for some reason. I don't know. I didn't either. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't either. They're smarter than but, us, I mean, <laughs> This wasn't my favorite of the stories in here, um, mm-hmm. but I went back after I read the book and watched Birthright, as I mentioned earlier, that I had watched it, and then I went back and kind of reread these chapters and got more out of it, mainly mm. because I think it really helps to see the episode or have it fresh in your mind, and then this picks up after that. And to know that what happened afterwards is that uh that Tokoth's wife left him and 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 the Klingons mm-hmm. were basically starting to shun the Romulans and a lot of them had left and and it was just like wow the society just didn't kind of fall back into place and and yeah. and Tok was the only one that just left and moved on and the society just never really got back to where it was and now the storyline uh you know for the rest of this and and chasing the bad guy whatever it, it was fine, but I feel like this story was setting up so that we would see Belle later, maybe in future novels, trying to assimilate herself within the Klingon culture and with Worf and stuff. And so it's a shame we didn't get to that piece because I feel like that mm-hmm. this was leading to that. There are so many things in this novel that make me really sad that there's no more after it because and that's one of them for sure. I want I want to add here that I did a little sleuthing on memory beta. Some of these characters do pop up. I don't know if it's just a reference or more in uh, Keith DeCanado's novel, A Singular Destiny. Yep, absolutely. Oh, you've read Which, that? Which uh, I'm assuming we will get to uh, sometime after we do Destiny later Eventually. this year. I haven't read that one yet. So I was like, oh, at least there's some references to where. Yeah, we'll probably doing. get to that uh, in early 2020. Okay. (laughs) Seriously. The way we have the schedule, it's probably going to be then. So, you know, we'll get to it, but don't hold your breath. That's that's still a year from now. (laughs) No, I mean, from what I could see, it see, yeah, it also seemed like it was maybe just a mention here and Mm -hmm. there of some characters. Yeah, I I don't want to give too much away, but we we see a few of them for sure. And we do actually see Clegg a few times as well from... Yeah, here and there. He becomes a general at some point. That's right. I saw a reference to him being a general... But it was just a reference, and I don't remember if it was in the Prometheus novel or something else, but but anyway, that's cool to know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, let's move on then to the next section of the story, which, uh, Justin, at the beginning, in the first one you were talking about, you felt this might work better if it was just a series of small novellas and it wasn't jumping back and forth between uh, the stories. This next story, we're going to talk about Rodek and Kern, who are the same person and they're kind of his shifting memories and how that all turns out. There is at one point in this story that I came to the end and it was a cliffhanger ending and it moved on to a different story. And <laughs> I, f- I found myself flipping to see, okay, how many chapters before we get back to this one? Oh, because well. I really want to know what happens next. <laughs> yeah. So for this one, this to me was the one I, I loved all of the stories in here, but this to me was the one where I was like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? Like, yes. how is this going yes. to resolve? Because like, the, the, I mean, this is one where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen to this. I'm, well, okay. So for some of the other characters, it was like that, but like could have been killed off or not found out something or buried it. Yeah. I didn't really know like where it was going to end up. Yeah. And I think yeah. we were so invested with this one too, because 
you know, he's Worf's brother. And so Worf, of course, is a very familiar character. And Kern slash Rodak, we saw in several episodes on the TV shows. And then we've had him on the IKS Gorkin. So really, this is a character that we probably are the most familiar with uh, Mm -hmm. versus all the others. And so the fact that this is a character that lost his memory or his memory was replaced uh, and he thinks he's a different person, and now he's discovering that. It was just like I wanted to see was this ha- was going to happen. Is he going to yeah, remember yeah. who he is? How is he going to respond to that? Is mm-hmm. he going to be yeah. mad at Worf, or is he going to go and say thank you, brother, for trying to make this work for me? You know. And I was just so invested in the story. I could have read a whole novel about his story. Honestly, I thought it was just really fascinating. I had no idea where it was going, and and. Uh... Yeah, I don't know when we'll get into spoilers, but I really want to talk about like what happens. Oh, I say we're into spoilers now, right? There, yeah, there. I think okay. just because of the way we've structured the episode, we should say we're probably going to spoil everything pretty okay. fast. So, all right. <laughs> I mean, because for me, this was such a heartbreaking story. So, like, I mean, it, I mean, it's not too often it happens to me, but I just like felt so much for the guy because you're right, Bruce. Like, we have so much history with this character. We saw him as as Worf's brother, as a captain on a ship, on the council, you know, fighting things out with Worf and, and you know, and, and uh, getting to the point where he is just like despondent on Deep Space Nine and has his memory replaced and then he comes back on the Gorkon. And then, like in this story, it seems like when everything kind of works itself out after he's manipulated by Clagg's brother that he's like, Okay, a weight's lifted off my shoulders. I'm happy now. <laughs> and then yeah. he goes on the Gorkon and Clagg is like, I can never trust you. Get out. <laughs> and he's mm-hmm. just like, but but <laughs> he thinks that he can reset it, but he can't. And then it He shunned it, it's for like dishonor again. Like he's basically mm-hmm. in the same place that he was originally. And he remembers this, I think, the scene where, you know, Worf gets a discommendation, everybody turns around with their back to him. And Kern was one of the people that did that. And now this is happening to him. And it's like he's, ah, I, I just don't know, because it felt like this guy really doesn't have much of a future because he's thinking toward the end, what can I do? All I could do is serve on a ship where the captain is an enemy of Clagg, but I think Clagg is like the greatest captain ever. I was just like, my heart is in pieces for this guy. Like, yeah. what the heck can he do? He's got to be like, this deal is getting worse all the time. <laughs> yeah, he should just go back to DS9 and Bashir should ri- wipe his memory again, give him a sex change and call him Lulu and try it again. Oh, because it's just not working. He has like nowhere to go. You know what? I mean, like, at, and I thought about it after this, like he has been through so much and who knows what he can do now. Like, and I don't usually think about it this way, but would it have been a better thing for Worf to just like do the mock divorce and just like end his suffering? You know what I mean? Because he has to go through all these permutations and suffering and it's like, would it have been better that he just died there? Why didn't Kern ask him to do it again? Let's do it right now, brother. Let, this isn't, you know, it didn't work. You know, let's, let's kill me now. Let's try Wait, you this say one now, more time. like during the novel, like yeah, during the novel, nothing. back when the back when he realizes who he is, and 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 Clag had nothing to do with it, and and mm. and Rodak 
Kern, whatever, runs off and Worf confronts him. It's almost like, because Worf says, you know, it's not my fault. They caught me doing this to you. They're the, you know, on Deep Space Nine. He should have said, then do it now. Let's get it over with. But I don't think during this novel that Kern would really ask for that because I think there's a part of him that thinks because well, he had that moment when things were lifted of like happiness that maybe somewhere in the future he can do that or maybe he can reclaim his honor. Whereas where he was at <clears throat> when he was on DS9 was that there was complete like desolation. Like there was no way, there was no hope. There's like a tiny bit of hope that he's going to pursue is how I feel about well, it. Well, yeah, no, you're exactly mm-hmm. right though. Cause you're, he does mention that the happiest he ever was, was when he was Rodek and he was on the Gorkin yeah. and he yeah. has that now to fall back on. He can go back to being Rodek, but then as you mentioned, Justin, he went back to being Rodek, but he, he can't go back to where he was. It's almost like he has to start all over again. Yeah, this part of the story, I think, had the most surprises for me when Rodak, I guess, says that, that he says, you know, I was never truly happy as Kern once you came into my life because this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I'm truly happy as Rodak was not what I was expecting at all. But no. <laughs> then it makes sense, you know, like the way it's presented, you're like, wait, no, okay, that makes sense. And then you feel like you said you feel for him and it's like oh that's great and he goes back to his life he's kind of strolls onto the bridge with a song in his heart and a tune on his lips he's just so happy and then you know this happens with clag and again to me it was unexpected but it probably shouldn't have been because it makes total sense when clag says to him you had a 15 minute conversation with a klingon you knew to be dishonorable and that was enough to turn your heart against me get out like you're like how could he do anything different you're absolutely right he couldn't i mean especially as a klingon there's no nothing different that clag could do because you just can't trust this guy now it's it's really unfortunate because like what is his place in klingon society now just to maybe try to be on a ship where someone is an enemy of clag and he'll hate himself for that because he thinks clag is honorable you know like mm, right he's if in like his- this purgatory if you were his therapist, if you were his Deanna <laughs> Troy, what would you tell him he should do next? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just that. Maybe he's scrubbing toilets on another ship and then rise through <laughs> the ranks again. I, I, I mean, I don't know, because it's like if, if he, he was at his happiest when this weight is lifted from him and he feels like he can go back as Rodek on the Gorkon, then... I don't know. It seems like that's not open to him and maybe he needs to consider something different. But what is there that's different? Like, I don't think he'd be happy in the Federation. So, Oh, I know what he can do. Yeah, he tried that in Deep Space Nine. That wasn't going to happen. What what, what could he do? He could go uh, be a farmer and have dinners and go around going, (laughs) corn on the cob, corn on the cob. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he picks his banjo in the background, yeah. I don't know, but like, see, that's why my heart broke for this guy like at the end because it's like, he, I don't think he has the outlet for the Mokdavor and just like end the suffering because maybe there's a glimmer of hope, but it's only like a tiny glimmer and he doesn't really have a place or a mm-hmm. family. Yeah. I mean, it just felt like very, very sad. <laughs> you know, th- that comment there just really hit me. Not having a place, not having a family. That's really what this book is about for all these characters. It's about family. Mm-hmm. It's about not Definitely. having family and finding family. 
because we have several characters that we talked about earlier. Or having family and losing it. Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's that not having family and having family and losing it. It really is a book about that. Definitely. Absolutely. That's a really good point. The other thing I wanted to say about Rodek is if I were him, I'd be even more mad at Worf now because, you know, he was fine as Kern until Worf entered the picture <laughs> and then yeah. everything went to crap. And he's like, oh, I'm happy as Rodek. And Worf did something, <laughs> sort of. You know, Worf was back in his life for a moment and now it's gone to crap again. <laughs> I, it's really telling that line when, you know, Kern says, you know, if you give me cause and I see you again, I'll kill you. <laughs> I'll kill you. And Worf says, if I give you cause, I will not stop you. I was like, yeah, because I think wow. Worf feels terrible about it, too. Absolutely. But, yeah. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the fourth story in this book, and, and these are in no particular order. Basically, they're just kind of random here. But we've got the chief medical officer on the Gorkon, Borak, and she is taking part in a conference for the Klingon Physicians Enclave. And this is a conference she's pushed for to hold, and it's kind of her project. And she's going to give a talk about her uh, experience in performing surgery on Clegg to replace his arm with that of his father's. Now, we get kind of hints and glimpses that the rest of the Klingon medical community, and I put medical community in quotes here because, wow, I, yeah, there's not much to speak of. Um, they don't heed her expertise. And in fact, many of them outright despise her. And you get the feeling that a lot of these doctors are at this conference just to kind of see blood spilled when, you know, she comes into contact with this other doctor that she has this rivalry with. Now, she does have the confidence of the chancellor and, and, you know, it was kind of her idea to put this project together. What did you guys think of this whole story and... You know, we'll talk a bit about how it winds up in a minute, but, you know, her experience going to this talk and the reception she's given, how did how did you guys take that? Well, first of all, my question is, who are these other people that are doctors? Like, if they don't really care about caring for patients, why don't they do something else? They mm. can become farmers. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but besides that, like, I actually, I thought this conference was so ridiculous that it was funny, actually, even though you feel bad for Borak, because it's like the first night, all they want to do is get drunk, right? And then <laughs> they have all of these talks and the people that are doing them are like incompetent. I think at one point somebody's like, hey, you know more than me, why don't you do it? And just walks off the stage and like hardly anybody's attending these things and... This guy who's her rival, I guess I'll call him Coeg, um, comes up and he spits on her boots. And like, it's just like the most ridiculous thing in the world for, for the, it's like worst conference ever, right? So there was something that was kind of funny about it, but also it makes sense with what we know about Klingon doctors, in quotes. <laughs> so I was wondering throughout all of this, like this seemed a little familiar to me. And you know, when you go to like one of the smaller comic conventions or science fiction conventions and somebody's putting on, you know, one of the things in one of the small rooms and there's like three people there <laughs> or, you know, a new author is just starting out and he's doing a reading from his new book or whatever. And there's like two people. <laughs> I true. totally it was like. I'm sure Keith has seen this kind of thing and is totally <laughs> channeling this here. What's great about this is I was reading this book when I was at a conference 
So <laughs> I seriously, and I'm not in the medical profession, but uh, I was in Puerto Rico uh, at this conference and I'm reading this and I was like, yeah, this describes the first night people were getting drunk. You know, it's like <laughs> the same thing. And I True. was getting ready to make a speech the next day. And I thought, what if they all like get up and turn their backs on me? <laughs> <laughs> Your talk is not honorable. Um, but yeah, I mean, the difference is that some of the people presenting are just incompetent. Some of the people in the audience are like, um, that's not right. <laughs> You're completely wrong. <laughs> um, no, but like I, I, I actually found that first part interesting because I think from the first time we see Borak, which I think is in diplomatic implausibility, that kind of interested me. Like, oh, a doctor who actually Klingon doctor who actually cares about medical care. That's interesting. And we've seen her through these novels and some of the resistance she gets and all of that. So it was interesting to see it all kind of coalesce into this disastrous conference. But, I mean, it does have a good purpose because she can go to Martok and be like, this is useless, and he creates something something new to replace it that might be more effective. And she also meets these other two doctors who are actually competent, uh, which I thought was was really interesting. So I thought it was it was good, and it was it was pretty interesting and entertaining to 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 watch this. It doesn't she at one point like someone challenges her and she just like kills the guy really quickly, like, wow. Klingon conferences. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially, you know, challenging such an experienced doctor. She's basically like, okay, well, I'll insert the knife between these two ribs. And <laughs> yep, that's got his heart. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so like, odd dead. because doctors save lives and yet she's killing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's like a mirror universe doctor. <laughs> right. Yeah. I would say this storyline was my least favorite of them. It wasn't oh, really? that. It wasn't that I didn't like it, but um, I just wasn't as invested in this one as I was okay. with the others. Side note, were you surprised that Clagg and Borak get together? Yes, I was surprised <laughs> by that. It was like toward the beginning of the novel. And I was like, oh, oh, oh okay, yeah, that's happening. Yeah, it was like happening. the first All chapter. Right. Yeah, I was like, whoa. And I was hmm. like, wait a minute. Wasn't Clagg the guy that like broke your arm in a previous book because he was really angry at you? But maybe that they consider that foreplay. Klingon <laughs> stuff is weird. I don't. If you read between the lines, though, like as it goes on, like they're kind of flirty, I think. And he notices the way she like tugs her braid and stuff. <laughs> and he like, I, I think there's some moments where he's like shaking his head and like, ah, oh, that doctor. And you can, I don't know. I, I kind of, it didn't, it didn't surprise me, but, and it didn't, I don't know. It didn't, um, not make sense if that makes okay. sense. Okay. No, I mean, it makes sense. Just, it was toward the beginning of the book and I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> I just think like, you know, okay, what what is it like with the two of them together? Does he like stroke her hair and she says, Oh, I love the way you play with my hair with your father's arm. Oh God. <laughs> Please, Bruce. <laughs> oh wow. That's a little weird. <laughs> That's taking dad jokes to a different level. <laughs> That's <laughs> I've never told oh. that one before. No. <laughs> Uh, wow, you've anyway. rendered us all speechless. I'm um, so sorry. <laughs> Corn on the cob? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like one other thought about this. I, I thought it was really interesting that at the end of it, Martok's like, we'll create this Klingon medical authority and you will not be a part of it. And she's like, wait, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it makes sense though, because she has so many enemies, but you know, she's helped to form this and she can do her own thing. So I felt like the, the end that it came to was great. It's not my favorite storyline, but I, I liked it quite a bit actually. Mm -hmm. I felt like, so the way that story kind of resolves is, uh, conveniently, I guess, question mark, there's this air car crash and, um, 
uh, Borak rushes in to save as many people as she can. And, and basically everybody who's still alive after the crash, she manages to save with the help of these two doctors that you mentioned. Uh, but she also locates the pilot of the air car and his family is going to be dishonored because it looks like this was an intentional attack. And the attending physician for the chancellor basically is this uh, Coag, who is Borak's sworn rival. And he says that the uh, the Klingon died on impact, so he did it intentionally. But Borak had previously examined the body on the Gorkon before he got his hands on it, and she determined that he had this condition and was not conscious when the car crashed. So she's kind of vindicated and, you know, is dishonors this other doctor because he's a worthless patak who's off playing the equivalent of golf when he should be giving his report yeah, he didn't even show up <laughs> yeah i thought that was great i was like this he's just such he he's totally you know the the rich high and mighty doctor who just phones it in who's off playing golf when he should be doing his job kind of yeah thing. and at one point they were like did he just like see it on the news report and give his 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 report based <laughs> on that? That was great. So yeah, I, yeah. I I I like that, and I like I like Borak, and mm-hmm. I like how uh, Kurak's like, "Oh, Borak, you should not be on the ship using sick bay right now." And I'm gonna tell Clag. She's like, "Go ahead and tell Clag. I don't care." And Clag's like, "Yeah, Borak's right. Correct. You should. <laughs> you're wrong. She did the right thing." And Kurak's like, "Ah, crap." <laughs> and I, I love how it was how it all came together too because they contact Clegg and Clegg's like Borak how's the rescue mission and I was like oh it's going well uh Kirak what did you want to say and she's like damn it she didn't ask permission to use the power for the what yeah well that's fine okay <laughs> I should have figured <laughs> yeah that was, I love that part that was that was great yeah that was really good so this other story has to do with another one of the the 15th um, this trooper named Gajoth, who, you know, when we started this series, I didn't know all these characters. And I was like, okay, who's the one that writes operas and changed it to a poem again? And by the time we get to this fourth book, I feel like I know all these Klingons really well. And Gajoth is that guy that, you know, was writing an opera, then he was writing a song, then he was writing a poem because he just couldn't quite get it right. But he returns to his hometown of Krenla, which you know, has seen better years. It's kind of uh, become poverty stricken. There's a lot of people out of work. There's no more demand for what it produces and that sort of thing. And his sister, Lacris, is a member of the chorus in a Klingon opera. And they're going to be debuting the Battle of Santara, which of course was in the first two Gorkon books. And Gajoth is kind of tapped to be a consultant for the opera. And of course, we learn that uh, he's not really being used for his expertise. He's being used because they can say, look, we have somebody who is there. So it's all authentic and stuff, even though they're not changing anything, because, you know, that's the way of art. <laughs> I kind of first of all, wanted to talk a bit about I, I this is another area where I think Keith DeCandido might be and I don't want to put words in his mouth or whatever, but where he might be kind of channeling his own experiences and that sort of thing. Because I love Star Trek. I've always loved Star Trek. But sometimes I feel like they have a science consultant on staff so they can point at him (laughs) and say, see, we have a science consultant. It's all scientific. You know, transporters aren't magical. They actually work by this, this and this. And I was wondering if you guys kind of got that impression as well, that Mm. maybe Mm. this was a 
fictional analog to real life experiences. I didn't think of that uh, specific uh, situation that you were mentioning, but I was thinking of theater and and movies and books and such because, yeah, they do take creative license a lot of the time with factual data. That's why when you see uh, a movie, it says, you know, based on the true story. Well, it's based on the true story. It's not the actual true story. By, by the or, way, or even like inspired by inspired real by events, which events, is even another step further less. away. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But so I like that. And, and, and the fight, the fighting stances and no, it's like that, or no, this was the hero. Not that was the hero. And, you know, it's just like, well, that's what works better for the play. That's how it works. And that visual works better on stage when you're in a theater. And, and it is so much like that in real life. And I also was wondering, I, I really wish you would have worked in something where uh, Joth say, oh, well, no, that's not right. That's not canon. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh man i love it <laughs> that would have been cool but i, I like this part a, a lot i mean particularly the because th there's more to it than just the the opera but like for the the opera i thought it was really great because it's like wait a minute he didn't fight in a square it was in a circle and they're like ah if we change that it'll mess up the meter <laughs> and they've got like <laughs> foam batleths or something that they're that they're working with and there's like all this stuff where they keep like no 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 we can't change that <laughs> to like everything he says and he gets really frustrated but in the end i think to a certain extent he comes to appreciate it like oh okay it's impressive and that makes people think our accomplishment was impressive that's the point <laughs> not that it mm -hmm. be completely accurate but like uh, this thought came into my head while I was reading about this because, um, you know, sometimes a Klingon will say songs will be sung of this day, right? It made me think maybe they should change it to inaccurate operas will be written of this day. <laughs> like, be because like, I don't know, do, do a lot of these warriors know that if they do these great feats that it'll be really twisted that way? I mean, I guess they must because they seem to watch operas, right? Maybe they just... But Gajoth doesn't seem to be aware that it's so inaccurate. Well, yeah, I mean, because that's really also what I was thinking is history always gets skewed. You know, as these stories are being told, whether it's an opera or a song or, you know, it, it the histories of things get skewed just like Kalis. I mean, there's stories that are told about Kalis. And again, when I was watching Birthright, or maybe it was in this book, I don't know, but, you know, they, Worf was asked, well, is that story really true? And Worf doesn't say, yes, it's a true story about Kalis. He's like, that's the story that's always been told. You know, that's what we live by or whatever. So these these are things become fables and 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 history gets skewed. And, and that's why I feel like this is also kind of saying it's like, you know, this battle that happened is not going to always be represented correctly. If anything, this opera is going to be seen by most of the population and told to others. And that now becomes reality. Yeah, and I think we all know the friend who, you know, watches an historical movie and is suddenly an expert on, you know, some historical thing because they they take the movie as gospel. And I'm sure there's tons of Klingons out there that'll do the same. Yeah. And for this opera, it's like a couple months later. They're not that far removed from the events and they're getting it wrong. And sometimes knowingly, they're like, yeah, yeah, we know that, but we can't change it because of this, this, and this reason. But it also makes The love me think, story makes it better. Yeah. The love story so, makes it better. Who cares if Tereth was already dead before? <laughs> like, fake it news. makes it better. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but like, I mean, it, it makes you think also, 
like even the people that are there for the, those events, they have different perspectives. They have different ways of seeing it. Like if you take a hundred people that are at one of a, a single event, you might hear a hundred different stories. So it's a lot of it is really subjective based on what someone sees. And even in this like short time and filtered through all this stuff, people are going to remember it differently, but they'll remember what Klingons would think would be the important part. Like we triumphed, right? And now they're part of the empire. That's like the important part. And I think when Worf's talking about Kalos, it's like, is it accurate or not? Well, it teaches the right lesson. That's what's important, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the message is correct. It's just the facts are wrong. Yeah. And as long as you can just set aside that it's just a story, as long as you get the message, that's what's important. And I think Gajoth kind of gets that after a while. So with Gajoth, we also get some aspects of his hometown of Kremla. And this made me want to talk a little bit about poverty and the Klingon Empire and that kind of thing, because we don't really see that a lot. We see, you know, like we've said, the warriors and that sort of thing. But the day-to-day life, they deal with a lot of the same problems that, you know, we do here on Earth in the 21st century. Uh, We've got this poverty and also this kind of idea of going home and seeing things through different eyes. I thought this was a really interesting aspect of Gajoth's story as well. Yeah, like this part, that part struck me a lot because you're right. You don't see, let's say, Klingon poverty or hopelessness or despair, which you're you're seeing in a lot of those scenes. And and some people were saying, yeah, it's gotten even worse since since Martok became chancellor. And Martok has like a little reference later, I think, because someone else was from Krenla, and he's like, oh yeah, that place is terrible and it's gotten worse. And it made me think, like, does Martok not care about that? Is there nothing that he would want to do about? Does it like what is the position that a chancellor person would take in their society on that? Because it almost made me see Martok in a little bit of a lesser light. Like mm, he doesn't care about these people that are suffering. It seems like yeah, because there's that line. This is what happens when a commoner becomes the chancellor, or something. That's like what that. someone yeah. says. They they blame him for that, and I mean. Maybe it's his fault. Maybe it isn't. But it seems like it's not top of mind, right? Like in these council sessions, it's like, oh, let's adjudicate this house dispute. And you want to get this petition for this or that. It never seems like they're talking about like, hey, there's like a million people suffering over there. What can we do about it? Yeah. You know? I don't know. I It reminded me of the Rust Belt, the cities in the northeast of the United States. And I thought about that. Yeah. Did it, okay. Because I. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it was just. That, you know, they were thriving towns and then, you know, that industry, whether it's coal or steel or whatever, just affected those communities. And I'm not going to say that it went into poverty and it was like quite like this, but um, that's that was the vision in my mind, maybe because I had lived in the Northeast. And it, and it seems like that's kind of what happened to this city. It's like they, they did something and that's not as valuable to the empire anymore. Oh, well, tough luck. It seemed to be the 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 way that people thought about it but yeah I, I thought about that too like there are certain cities and towns in the u.s but also in other places where they might base it around something and then taste change or the economy changes and they get kind of left behind and and it just yeah i think it's interesting that keith de canada highlighted that because it's not something you usually think about for klingons i mean or indeed 
at all in Star Trek, really, right? Like, and if you do, maybe it's some alien civilization you're just meeting. You don't think about it for those you're familiar with, like the Klingons or the Romulans or whatever. I mean, yeah, I guess you get to see it a little bit for the Romulans or the Remans and Nemesis, but it's kind of lightly touched upon in, in Star Trek, and it was really striking here for that reason. I really like how that story ends when, you know, he's thinking back on his youth and how he used to watch the, the adventures of the battle cruiser vengeance. And so he brings the copies of all of the original episodes to his childhood friend who, you know, they're not really friends anymore, but he wants him to give them to his kid and have them share, have him share them with the neighborhood kids because, you know, maybe there's not a lot going for them right now, but they deserve hope. And especially that younger generation. And of course, the obvious parallel there is Star Trek, right? I mean, Battlecruiser Vengeance has always been Star Trek as represented in universe to the Klingons, you know. So the idea that they get the same lesson out of that, that, you know, somebody watching Star Trek in the 60s would get, I think was really beautiful. But was it the VHS tapes or the DVDs? (laughs) That's... What I'm wondering. Data spike, I don't know. They, apparently. they have these things called data spikes. And I was thinking, like, does that serve a double purpose? Like, you can store your data or <laughs> in a pinch, you can stab somebody. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, you're right. Like, that was a nice little end to the story where it's like, I know things are difficult here. Maybe I can't do anything for you, but maybe the children can have some hope for the future. I thought that was, that was really yeah, that was a really nice thing. And like, yeah, the closest you could do to a Star Trek parallel um, in this novel. I, it was a nice thing mm-hmm. because that story does start off with him seeing these boys and the situation that they're in with that security guard. And then he kind of comes back and in a sense is giving something to the community, something that can be passed on, something that is hope. But at the same time, I think, feel like the message of the story that revolved around his sister And she's having an affair with that prominent actor in the play who thinks he's all great and he's very pompous and whatever about it. And and now he's with another woman and he's basically looking at his sister and saying, you know, told you so. But then he sees her back (laughs) with him again. Like she didn't learn the lesson. And it's like she's just going to repeat. And it's almost like he may want to give hope to the community. But at the same time, I felt like the message was, well, maybe things will get better. But if anything, I think it's ingrained in their community to just continue to be the way they are. I don't want to like put down certain aspects of society and stuff, but that really seemed familiar to me. Like, you know, the old story of leaving your hometown and having these otherworldly adventures abroad and stuff, and then coming home and everyone's still kind of just doing the same things they did in high school. And you're just like, oh God, what's my sister doing? Oh man, you're an idiot. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. There was one other aspect I thought was interesting, and I wonder if the books were developed more, if you'd go into that more. Because I think when Gajoth goes into this city, he sees these boys and He's, they're doing things that he would have done in his childhood he thinks is harmless, like throwing a spear or something. And this law enforcement officer is just like really harsh. And Gajoth's talking about how they're harsher than they used to be. There's more of them. It seems like there's something that's going on within the Klingon society, or at least the society of this city, where things are getting like a little more desperate, a little more severe, a little darker. <laughs> and I just mm-hmm. wondered if that would have been developed a little more like there is actually this societal change that's happening in the Klingon empire. Yeah, that could definitely be at least in, in these areas. And I think that that's something that 
seems to happen when there's poverty and destitution and you mm-hmm. know those crime rates start to rise and all that kind of stuff and there's a crackdown and it's yes. heavy-handed and all and that And then it stuff. just is kind of like a feedback loop where each of those can get worse until something breaks the cycle. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. also wondered if this was a reflection of uh, Keith DeCandido's experiences growing up in New York. Now, I don't know exactly mm. what area of New York, but his neighborhood could have gone downhill, the one that he grew up in. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I think he's he's listened to these episodes, so maybe he'll let us know. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. Uh, well, we've talked a little bit about Captain Clagg, and he kind of uh, ties a few of these stories together. He's kind of this presence throughout this book. And really his uh, relationship or, you know, broken relationship with his brother plays a big part in this novel, Uh, as well as surprisingly his mother. Again, this is a novel that certain things keep happening and I'm completely surprised by them. But then afterwards go, oh, that kind of makes sense. I should have seen that coming. You know, the fact that his mother is talking about this broken relationship with his brother and why can't he just come back to the family? Oh, mother, you know why he can't. Oh, okay. Uh, I've poisoned you, by the way, and now you have to go fight him. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, right. These are Klingons we're talking about. Okay. Um, So what did you guys think of the role that Clegg plays in this novel? He has a very small role compared to these mm-hmm. like he he has a bit of a storyline but he doesn't have the chapters like some of these other ones yeah but if anything i've just really hated his mother i thought she was a yeah. jerk right <laughs> like uh, yeah hmm. she she just lost her mother card in my opinion that, that's interesting because <laughs> i didn't feel that way i felt kind of sorry for her that she'd been kind of put into this situation i felt like his brother doric was the real bad guy and almost like Holy evil! (laughs) To the nth degree, yeah. To the nth degree, and and that the mother was just kind of forced into that situation. But like overall, like when I think about Clag, yes, he's had important parts, but I feel like for the captain of like the important ship in all of these novels, he's had less of a role than I might have thought he would. And I've liked a lot of the other characters more and felt for Mm -hmm. them more. I mean, it feels weird because like if you had four books that were about you know, the Enterprise E, probably Picard would be really important or the 1701, probably Kirk would be more important or that kind of thing. Maybe not because it's different in different novels. But it surprised me looking over these four novels that he hasn't been kind of more important and I haven't been like there have been things that I've liked, but it's kind of like he's there. He moves along the story. I like him, but I like a lot of the other characters like a lot more. Yeah, it's almost like this is definitely more of the ensemble type of stories Mm -hmm. than most star trek series i mean most of them are an ensemble but the captain always seems to be the lead except for discovery where burnham is the lead in this case i don't feel like any of the characters are really the lead of the ensemble i really feel like it's almost equal you know what like what and also like because this is the last of these novels just reflecting on it for me like usually the bridge crew is like the heart of things but for me that 15th squad is the heart of things yes. and for mm-hmm. me like i have been most fascinated by them because it's something i didn't expect when we first read these novels and it's something i've loved that lower decks kind of aspect for for this klingon ship and just picking out this squad and you see you know wall going through all this stuff and all the different people in the squad and all of that and like a lot of the book was more focused on the different members of the squad than it was really on the bridge crew so like for me that's been the heart of it and 
I would have loved to see a book that is just about the 15th and their like point of view and not even deal with the bridge. I mean, like there is great stuff that happens, but I was surprised that I found like this squad is like the heart and soul of these novels. And I wish actually there was more <laughs> for them. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder if we've been seeing the Klingon opera version of Klingons up till now, because they're always focusing on the bridge and what they're doing yeah. up there. But yeah. like the Klingon opera in this story, they don't even mention the the ground troops that had the big role at Centara. It's all Clegg battling this leader in the square, which is actually a circle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's true. And, and I think because you're able to have multiple books and really in a book you can explore these things more than a show or an opera like how like Santara you know it was two books here and they're going to explore it in this one opera that's I don't know two two and a half hours like there's not much you can do like a couple characters and that's it so it I mean I think it it highlights the art form of the novel in really being able to bring out more depth and more characters and really get into it more. Well, a couple things that I just kind of wanted to bring up at the end, and uh, I'm sure you guys have your your things that you want to bring up as well. Um, I wanted to highlight Kirak and Leskett, who I'd kind of forgotten, like near the beginning of the novel, they're talking about, oh, why can't we just be mated? Oh, I can't because my current wife would be out on the street because of her situation there. And then at the very end of the novel, in session in uh, in the Great Hall of the Klingon Empire, it comes up that Kirak wants to become the head of her household because her Jintak has died. Uh, and Martok grants her special dispensation to do so. And <laughs> basically off to the side, we see this uh, woman or she names this woman as her house is Jintok, which is oh, a woman Jintok. That's rare. But yeah, sure. That's not a problem. And then the woman she named marches over to this elderly Klingon and backhands him and spits on him and divorces him. And then the elderly Klingon walks over to Kirak and we realize it's Leskett and they get married then and there and then walk out. And Martok's kind of like, well, that was weird. Anyway, <laughs> I love that. I was just brilliant. I was crying laughing at that part. <laughs> it was it was so brilliant because you definitely didn't see it coming. And then they mm -hmm. come up with this solution that kind of narrowly threads the needle so that they're like, huh, that's weird. Okay, moving on. Instead of like, you can't do that. But like they found this brilliant way to I loved Loved, loved that. <laughs> yeah, so and it was so, just <laughs> so good. Out of the blue, you know, not even <laughs> expecting it. Just because these two characters weren't used throughout the novel, I mean, very little. And then all of a sudden, this thing happens. It's like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened here? Did it, whoa, did I miss something? I feel like Keith DeCandido had fun writing that. Like, that would just be so much fun to write. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is uh, stuff that again, makes me sad because if the book were to continue, if the series were to continue, we'd get these followed up on. Uh, we've got Lorg and Imperial Intelligence. And Lorg, it turns out, has his fingers in a lot of pies here. There's a lot of stuff going on with this guy. And I you know, I don't know if I'd really care too much about this story. It's kind of Section 31, but with the Klingons. But at the same time, I'm like, it's obvious that they're building to something. And, and Keith was wanting to build some story out of this that now I'm sad we won't get because I'm sure it would have been great. Yeah, I felt like it was building up to that at the end, uh, that there was going to be something in another book about Lorg. And 
I, I always got confused about Lorg too. Like, I don't know why I have a hard time with him because he seems to represent different things at different times throughout the book. I'm like, wait, I thought he was so and so's. Wait, was it? Wait, he's I. Wait, who, yes. he's dwarfs. Wait, I'm confused. You know what? You know what, Bruce? He's the Klingon Garrick because you're not sure what to think of him yes. and what schemes totally. he's into, right? Um, like. Okay, so they, there's been this thread of imperial intelligence that we've seen throughout the different novels, and then and there's a, there's some in this novel and whatever was going on in Kittimer, but then at the end, like the the there's two epilogues. One's about Bale, the other's about is is that about Lorg? The second epilogue? Yeah, I think yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and like you come to first of all, like this guy is sadistic, in 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 because there's this you know uh, female. Uh, imperial intelligence operative who he's he's angry at and he forces her to watch him like repeatedly killing klingons that look like her like my goodness anyway (laughs) but after that like at the very end he's thinking like uh things are moving along and uh maybe there are a few missteps here and there but my plan for what is it like wharf and kern and toke it's it's possible that it would happen and i'm just like what <laughs> like mm-hmm. this plan he's had for a long time and maybe keith to canada or tell us like what was that plan that he had because <laughs> i was kind of like wow interested by that yeah i it's something that i i don't know how but man i would love to see what he had in mind there for sure because it seemed like it was this plan that had been he'd had in his head for like decades or something yeah (laughs) wow like this grand plan for Worf and kern's life and toke was part of it too it's like what (laughs) i don't know because he ended up raising kern this guy he did and he he had to have known Worf was off with the federation Mm -hmm. so like was that planned by him did he plan for the intrepid to rescue him And, And, and is he the one that takes in toke as well yeah yeah, yeah, which is like that's a weird what I'm saying. I'm always getting about. confused. Wait, <laughs> he's like the same guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So definitely he's an that old imp- friend of the family of dwarfs. I mean, that whole imperial <laughs> intelligence thing was going somewhere. I and I don't know if it had something because there's th- these frictions that happen between them and like the rest of the government, and the defense force. It almost made me think like they would have some plot at some point that you'd see in a novel for them to try to take over the empire or something. I don't know. That's the only thought I had could be something very different. I love how I I've always loved this in Deep Space 9 how close Worf is to being the chancellor of the Klingon Empire. You know, the, he has the cloak thrust on him and he could have just taken over right then and there and I think Martok in this novel even says he more than deserved to be the chancellor way more than I did. Like, oh, I can't believe he did this to me. <laughs> you know, and like Man, how would that have figured into Lorg's plan? Would it have been like the best thing ever for uh, him or would it have thrown a wrench in things? Like it's crazy. I haven't read the book The Klingon Art of War that Keith DeCandido wrote which would have been after either. these. I have the book, it's on my shelf. I just haven't read it yet. Is it a is it a reference book or a novel? It's more of a it's, reference book, I mean, but Yeah. In a fictional universe within the universe, I think, but um mm-hmm. I just wonder if any aspects of these characters or these events are in the book at some point not at all that i recall they're mostly as far as i remember like historical stories okay. that all relate to the the mm. tenets of of Kalis's yeah. teachings kind of and thing. i know that i think it was you and matt that covered this book in a previous episode of literary tracks yeah and uh i love that book um partially because you know keith finally <laughs> is 
Keith DeCandido finally during the the huge drought we've had of him not writing Star Trek novels. So, uh, but it's it's very good. So I do recommend it for sure. I know it's a small part, but I th- I thought I actually liked that <laughs> that Rodak slash Kern goes to Deep Space Nine and we see Bashir and Ezri for a little bit. Yes, I just mm-hmm. always like seeing them. I know it was a small thing, but it's one of the. F- only novels where you see Starfleet officers in this four book series. Yeah, I got a, a little excited. <laughs> I was like, "Ooh, he's going Deep Space Nine. Ooh, there's Bashir. Ooh, Ezri." Yeah, I was getting excited. Nog has one line where you hear him on the intercom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was neat for sure. Um, that's actually it was it was right after that part where Kern's in the restaurant and Doric comes up oh. to him and says, "I know who you really are." And then it like goes to the next story. That's the moment that I was flipping to see like looking for Bashir's name. <laughs> the, the Klingon restaurant, which was one of my favorite things ever. So it was great to just even see that in a novel. Yeah. That's always fun for sure. Well, do we um want to launch into our final thoughts and ratings then? Um Justin, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, so I think I talked about a little bit at the beginning, like I wasn't quite sure what to make of this one and thought maybe it could have been better organized into novellas. I mean, as we talk about it, talked about it, it made me realize like there are some stories that it took a little time for me to get into. Actually, the story with like wool on the farming planet took me some time to get into that, but it was kind of a nice story. And I like that we got to see Goron in this <laughs> in this uh contest basically <laughs> just like going up to their champion and like crushing him instantly which was was cool um and and then like for we talked about the one for toke which had some i i got the most out of that from from bael and like the actual machinations maybe i wasn't as as into it i mean the the rodex stuff was for me that was the best part of the novel because it was just like it was twisting me all of these different ways, like the triumph and the tragedy. And like, this guy has almost like a Greek tragic story, doesn't he? Because it's oh, all the stuff that happens to him and it's, and it's really sad. Well, maybe not complete Greek tragedy because he's still alive at the end. But anyway, um, but like for me, that was just such a heartbreaking and amazingly written story. I, I love that. I mean, the, the Borak stuff, I, I really enjoyed as well. Um, I like the the Gajoth stuff and the stuff with Clag and the little bits, but um, I, I mean, so we've gone over the the previous three novels, and I think I loved each of those. And as much as it pains me to say it, I didn't love this one quite as much. Um, I did really enjoy it, but like part part of it, I think, was the structure. It was throwing me off, and I wish it was just novellas. Like here's the the start to finish story for Wall or for Talk or all of that. And then at the end, they all kind of get together and you see like the family that they are and everything and like that. So that the structure of it threw me a little bit. And some of the stories I wasn't as into and I was a bit like you, Dan, where I wanted to like kind of flip to the next thing. So it, and it pains me to say that because I love, I've loved these novels so far and I like where it was going, but I wasn't quite as into it and I always hate to say that (laughs) but but it's the truth for this one um but there was still a lot that I that I really enjoyed and it's packed with with really good stuff so for a rating I think I would give it four fist fights where Goran immediately crushes a challenger on Feban 3. Nice Bruce how about yourself? I'm pretty much there with Justin I do agree that there were times it getting a little confusing when you're jumping from one story to the other maybe it would have worked better better to be little short stories and novellas that kind of stick the stories together 
I did go back and skim through the whole book again later just to kind of refresh my memories of some things. And so it helped to do that and it helped connect the pieces because I knew where the story was going. I definitely would recommend if you read the previous three IKS Gorkin books that you then go back and watch the TNG episodes part one and two of Birthright and the DS9 episode Sons of Moog um, because I think that would lead really well into going into this novel but looking at these characters individually or these little off stories of them dealing with family and with one another was a great character piece but it didn't have that action adventure and and going off into the ship and battle and all those other Klingon things that we're used to in the other novels so in some ways it's almost fitting that this wasn't called the IKS Gorkin since it didn't really take place on the ship it took place more with among the Klingon Empire, but um, I but I did enjoy it. Probably not as much as the previous three, but that's not because I didn't like it. It's because it's different, so it's hard to compare to those other three. It's a different type of storytelling, um, but I did enjoy really getting to know these characters. As a matter of fact, when uh, Leskett took Kurak to uh, the Vulcan restaurant the vulcan restaurant yes yes, yes. i forgot about I that i thought yeah. is that vulcan restaurant later used by dayton ward in the klingon travel guide and i want to go back and look <laughs> oh i don't know but there was aspects in this book that then that stuck in my mind i was like i have to go back and look at the travel guide and see if anything was worked into that oh well, i gotta say as soon as we're done here i'm gonna check because <laughs> i didn't even think of that <laughs> i didn't either but, but that was really cool just to see the Vulcan restaurant and that Leskett was like, hey, it's not the same as our food, but try it out. I like it. <laughs> and you just wouldn't expect a Klingon to really be into that. And the way it was represented almost sounded like it's a, a restaurant from the Far East in the United States, like a you know, Chinese restaurant or something. You know, it had that feel to mm. it the way mm. they was describing it. But anyway. There's mostly Vulcanoids in here, you know, but there's the odd Klingon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, this uh, book, I think I would give this, I'm going to say, four out of five Klingon operas. Hmm. All right. Well, this is a rare occasion, I got to say, because I'm disagreeing with both of you okay. um, <laughs> quite vehemently. Ooh. I absolutely loved this novel, like from start to finish. You know, and I did talk about, you know, you know, looking ahead to see how many pages till we got back to a certain story, but in between I, I fell in love with all those other stories as well. So it was just like me wanting to know what happened next, but I can wait. I can read through this other stuff. I loved every story in here by the end. I really liked the lessons that wool learns in the first part that we talked about. Um, maybe like you, Bruce and, and Justin, I didn't quite, like the machinations of the talk story so much, but I loved that we got to revisit those characters and what happened with bile at the end and all of that. And the Rodex story, like you said, Justin was just so good. Like that was so good to me. And Borak, I really actually enjoyed that story quite a bit with the, with the Klingon medical community and the ridiculousness of it and all this sort of stuff. And the kind of social message that Gajoth's story had, I, it just there's every part of this novel I absolutely loved. 
And I do realize that it stands on the shoulders of the books before it. I would not love this book as much as I do if it weren't for those other books. But that said, I think this is my favorite of this series. And not just because it's the only book in the Klingon Empire series, but of the four, you know, that are kind of in a loose series together, this one I think is my favorite. And I have to give it a full five out of five staged batleth fights, but like they're really bouncy on their feet so that you can see them from the high seats. (laughs) Oh, and I love that because they were like dancing and he's like, what? Are you crazy? You would never fight like that. (laughs) Like, but they have to see it in the cheap seats. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So my five out of five is good enough to be seen from the cheap seats. Wow. (laughs) So yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. There's, uh, yeah, I, I was blown away by this one. And I don't huh. know why maybe it just caught me in the exact right mood, but I I loved it. So with that said, uh, Justin, where can people find you on the network and elsewhere? Well, you can find me elsewhere on the network, co-hosting Earl Grey. That's our dedicated Next Generation podcast with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. We have a great time talking about the Next Generation every week. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek including novels that I read, lots of other Star Trek stuff. Um, You can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And as I like to mention here, there's a couple of Facebook groups uh, that I take an active part in, posting reviews of novels that that I've read and things that I've found. Um, And that's literally Star Trek, the Star Trek Books Community Group, and the Star Trek Books Discussion Group. So hope you'll join me at any one of those places. Love to talk to you. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, and it's sad that we're done with the IKS Gorkun and the Klingon stories. There's a few more here and there that, I don't know, we might have to work in somehow and bring you back to talk I, about. I, I noticed that there are, well, I actually, I read about them in part of the Brave and the Bold. So I did read that mm. while we were going through these. And I know there are some short stories and things and like the Tales of the Dominion War and Captain's Table even. Or Tales of the Captain's That's Table right. or something yes. like that. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, it's it's not the end of the Gorkon. There's more than just these four novels plus diplomatic implausibility. Definitely. And the funny thing is I read the one, I think the only other one I've read is uh, from the Tales from the Captain's Table. But I read that before I'd read any of these. So oh, interesting. I remember not really enjoying it. So I should go like back clag. and revisit that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't know who any of these people were. So I, I haven't read any of the Captain's Table stuff. I recently got it and put it on my shelf. So oh, I'll right read on. it sometime. <laughs> They're a little different. I think you'll be uh, ple- pleasantly surprised. Yeah, we'll do those in 2022. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, I'll make the appointment. <laughs> well, Dan, I think it's great that you love this novel so much. I mean, I really did enjoy the novel. I really did. Um, but not not loved it like you did. Yeah, like I said, I don't know if it just caught me in the right mood or what, but this one, I just, everything worked for me for sure. So I, it, it's definitely my favorite of the four uh, Gorkon novels, which is really saying something because I really enjoyed all of those. I'd almost would be interested to see you go back and reread it, but note which chapters tie into each other as a story and read it like little novellas like so skip ahead to those chapters then go back and start another story and skip to those chapters and have them all connect that way hmm that would be interesting there's there's a couple little areas i i thought about this where where they overlap a little bit where there's different characters that are appear in both stories but 
I think it would hold together. And I think if you keep that in mind, it could really work. Well, it's been fun talking about jumping around the timeline of this novel today, but this is not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. I just wonder, like, I I think this is sort of a delicate focus area Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. a series, Section Mm -hmm. 31. I think it will be very easy to make an interesting TV show that strays too far away from what Star Trek is at its core unless it's handled carefully. And so I'm going to be interested to see what they do with it. And I'm kind of wait and see. That can be a dynamic tension. You could have two different characters Mm -hmm. or two different factions that represent that spectrum. Earl Grey. But yeah, it is kind of a very Kirk thing. Like, I'm going to, you know, save the day this way. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. It's a great moment because the twist, you just don't see it at all. And here Riker comes and is like, nope, I'm not. And then bam, bing, bing, and poo, poo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, no, if Riker's infected, how are they going to get up? Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. And just right to the very end. It was great timing Mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. The orb. The way that you live your life is a routine and a pattern and almost an addiction because it becomes just what you do. And to break out of that takes immense work. And and therefore, you you usually, when you're going to make a change like that, you need some sort of safety net. And Brow hasn't been in a place where he feels that long enough, even though Kira is kind of offering that to him. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Pike's answer was a little, well, I owe you a simile. Like, oh, come on, dude. Uh, but but when he talks to Connolly, he's like, do you see how many syllables died? Like, that <laughs> was <know>. great. <laughs> that was so funny. Oh, my gosh. That was so amazing. I'm being a bit contradictory right here because I like Pike for the reasons I don't like Tilly, right. but. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, a seat at the Yopta Yupma festival table, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trackfm. And we got some feedback. We have a review on iTunes, and it's from tizzylish108 and tizzy says growing up i never had anyone to talk about star trek books with 
I wish there had been a podcast like this or, you know, podcasts at all. Well, thank you, Tizzy, for that review. Uh, Tizzy gave us five stars. Really appreciate it. And I'm like you. I've been reading these books forever and never had anybody to talk to them with. And now I get to talk to Dan every week or Justin sometimes or Amy or Brand or whoever comes onto the show. And even the authors. I mean, this is like a dream come true. And even before I was on the show, like you, Tizzy Lish 108, I loved listening to literary tracks. It always kept me entertained. Yeah, I'm right there with you. This is, I mean, this is the beauty of the internet, right? I mean, when we were kids, we were all into something that maybe we didn't have a lot of friends who were into. I certainly knew nobody that read Star Trek novels. I just knew there were a few in my school's library and I ended up buying a few, but never got the chance to talk with anybody about them. And now with the internet, we're so connected to all these different people that share our our tastes and the things we're into uh, not to sound like, you know, an old guy or something, but I think kids today don't realize how good they have it because being a Trekkie when you were a kid, especially one who was into Star Trek books, sometimes felt a little lonely. Uh, so it's good to know that there's like-minded fans out there. Absolutely. So thank you, Tizzy, for that review. And for those of you who are listening that haven't given us a review, please do so. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there's many ways you can do that. And the best place to join in on the larger conversation is in the Babel conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks that will come right to us. And you can find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group at Goodreads.com where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. There are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just go to goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks, click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not sharing a stash of candied rocked with your bunkmates, where can we find you? <laughs> Eating some now. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You know, that's Admiral and then underline and Rex. Or you can find me on the Star Wars report talking about Star Wars. Or you can find me right here on the network talking about Star Trek Discovery with Brandy Jackalow. And we talk about uh, Discovery the day after. It's on Live from the Edge. So it's a live show on YouTube. Friday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Check us out on YouTube. And uh, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. And Dan... When you're not dining in a Vulcan restaurant on Kronos, where can people find you? <laughs> you know, if I ever did find myself on Kronos, that is probably where I'd be eating most of the time. But when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek. These days, mostly about Discovery and the new episodes as they come out. 
Uh, you can also find me on facebook.com slash Productions, And of course, like Bruce, in the Babel Conference, usually lurking, but sometimes commenting. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. Previously on Trek FM. Warp 5. <laughs> Standard <laughs> Orbit. The 602 Club. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. I was once driving, and I think I might have told you this, but I had like I had it turned up fairly loud because the heater was going really loud. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cold. And the bass must have been turned really high or something because yeah. it was like, the 602 Club. And the whole car. Boom. I was like, oh, my God. That one does come out a little loud, that lightsaber. It does. All right. Sorry. <clears throat> if you're not an Apple user, well, you've got issues. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it's from Tizzy Liss. <laughs> I don't even know what's so funny, but I like I it. I can't talk. Neither one of us can talk tonight. Oh, I know. And until next time. This long... Um... <laughs> so we're going with that (laughs) I just wanted to purposely mess up and I just (laughs) oh god (laughs) we have five words left to get out (laughs) oh my god long and read on. <laughs> I can I can do it. And read on. There, I'll let you choose. <laughs> I might put outtakes at the very, very end. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good ones. I was yeah, there are some good ones. <laughs> oh, all right, stop recording. <laughs>